0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done 499 of them now, that's what this one is. And uh, if you haven't seen others and would like to, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones archived in various ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there is a PayPal button on every page of the site. And that little sentence I just said is just about the only thing we do to raise funds. We don't like to make a big fuss of it, but the support is appreciated and is essential. So my guest today is Giovanni Densman. Giovanni is a spiritual practitioner and teacher and the creator of Live and Dare, one of the top five most visited meditation blogs on the planet, as far as we know, on any planet. As an author, meditation coach, and speaker, Giovanni helps people overcome anxiety and stress to live a more calm and centered life through spiritually inspired personal development work. So having read that that sentence just now, it makes it sound like it's one of these sort of, that he's offering a sort of practical, down-to-earth, benefit-oriented approach to spirituality, which very often doesn't even involve the word spirituality. People meditate and do yoga and stuff to deal with stress. But Giovanni himself is very deeply spiritually motivated and has been since the age of 14. Spirituality has been the center of his life since then. And um, in his journey, he has practiced over 9,000 hours of meditation and counting, tried 70 different techniques and nearly became a monk twice. When you say that to people, Giovanni, that you've tried 70 different techniques, do you get accused of digging a whole lot of shallow wells instead of one deep one?
1: (laughs) When I talk to spiritual practitioners, yes, they feel like, some of them will feel like, why have you tried so many? Don't you get one and focus and go deep into that one? But when I'm talking to people who are approaching meditation as a practice of healing, of growth for the other non-spiritual benefits of the practice, then they appreciate, okay, this guy has practiced different techniques, so maybe he can help me find out which one is best for me.
0: I think that it's different for different people, but for some people, maybe it's a really good idea to, sh- to shop around and try a bunch of different things and then settle on one or two or three that... Really work for you, and how would you know which ones work unless you've tried a number of them?
1: And in the past, this was never possible because we didn't have; it wasn't available. All of these paths were not available. The guru that you meet, the guru of your town or whatever, the religion that you were born into; those are the methods and the techniques that you be exposed to. But nowadays, we have we have all these books, all these masters, all these videos, and we can learn about all these paths. So While I recommend people to find one meditation and one path that works best for them and really focus on that, unless you expose yourself to many practices, it's very hard to find the right one for you, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, when I first learned back in the 60s, um, there weren't that many things around. There was TM, which I learned, there was Zen. I went to a Zen center once in New York City, had my car towed away, spent the night sleeping in a car storage lot. That was an adventure. And there was Guru Maharaji, the 14 year old perfect master. <laughs> and there was Silva Mind Control. And I suppose, and there was Yogananda's technique, you know, this SRF. And not much more, there's, at least that, was, that I was aware of. These days, obviously, with the internet and everything else, there's a huge supermarket full of, of things <clears> that <throat> one could potentially do. It must. It might be a little overwhelming for some people. Where do they start? What do they do?
1: Yeah. Well, and of these techniques, all of the ones that I try they are traditional techniques. So many of them are from the Tantras. There is the book, the Pinyana Bhairava Tantra, which teaches you 108, 112 different meditations. So many of them came from that book.
0: Yeah, I remember hearing about that back in back in the 70s that it was said that there were that many different ways to transcend. And uh, you know, theoretically, you could try them all. I suppose on this on this topic, people are going to maybe try different things, and then at a certain point, they're going to do something, and it, it really works for them profoundly. And then
1: they think, okay, that's the one for me. Has that been your experience? In certain phases of my journey, yes. So in the very beginning, one of my first paths was Zen Buddhism, and I almost became a monk there. And at that time, I was only practicing Zazen. So I didn't care about any other teaching, any other technique. It was only Zazen. But then when I moved on from that path, and I think we might um, zoom into that later on in the interview. When I moved on from that path, then I went to the path of Ramana and Advaita. And then when I moved on from that path 10 years later, then I was like, okay, let me check what is out there. And that's, that was the phase of my life that I experimented all these techniques before I focused on another one. Yeah, and
0: and the first thing you got into when you were about fourteen was occultism, wasn't it? Or, no, you went mm-hmm. to some meditation group, didn't you? Uh, and did some kind of meditation, and it, it, you really liked it. And then you go ahead, tell the story.
1: Yeah. So it all started with me reading Paulo Coelho. Right, I was um, my mom had his books, so I read his books and. I got fascinated with this idea of the, the mystic, the occult, the esoteric. And so I started reading about anything, anything that I could find in Portuguese because I was born and raised in Brazil, anything I could find in my mother tongue about religion, philosophy, occultism, Kabbalah, all of that, I was reading like crazy and many of these books, many of these paths, they recommend meditation. So when I got to know about a workshop that was being held in my city, which was by the Brahma Kumaris group. So I went there for a one hour introduction to meditation and there was maybe a 10 minutes guided meditation. And that experience was very special. And for the first time ever in my life, I was happy and at peace in the present moment, nothing to run after nothing to run away from, just happy inside my own skin. And I was a very restless teenager and child. So that experience was unique. It was something that I've never had before. And when I had the experience, I said like, okay, I'm going to continue practicing meditation every day in my life. And that was the beginning. I continued practicing meditation. I continued reading a lot first about the occult. That was my interest. I had a strong fascination for the cities, the supernatural powers and that type of thing. And for the next two to two and a half years of my life, that's how the journey went until little by little, I started realizing that what I'm after is not power. It's awakening. It's enlightenment. And when I started realizing that, then my path began to shift. Um, There were three paths that were calling my attention at that time, which was the path of Zen Buddhism, the path of Advaita Vedanta, and the path of Taoism. And I felt like, okay, so far, I have been studying and reading and trying to practice all these things. But I feel that it's better to dig 10 meters in a single direction than one meter holes in ten different directions, right? So I felt this need to decide and choose one path and then dedicate myself fully to it. And because I got to know of a Zen master that lived in my city, um, in in Soto Zen, the Zen master is called Roshi. And later on, I discovered that actually he's he's quite big, Um, like from the Zen. From the Soto-Zen tradition, he was the main one for the whole South America. He was responsible for the development of Zen in South America. And he lived in my city, Porto Alegre, in Brazil. So when I found about him and I started going to his Zen center, then I felt like, okay, let me choose this path because I found a master and it's speaking to me right now. And I made it my path. It was interesting, the day that I went to Via Zen to meet him, um, there was no one around. And it didn't come to me that I had to go in specific times. I just went in the middle of the day, (laughs) in the middle of the week, and he was alone there. So I had this chance to speak with him at length. And I asked many questions. And one of the questions was, have you achieved Nirvana? And he said, yes, that's what it means to be a Roshi. That's what it means to have received the Dharma transmission. And then I felt, wow, I'm in the presence of an enlightened being. This is great, right? So that's that's how it all started for me in Zen.
0: Cool. And uh, from what I read of your bio on your website, you really got into it. You know, gung ho. You you've always been the type to really get into this stuff whenever you try it out. You're not you're not just a dilettante, which means a superficial dabbler. You just go in, f- you know, f- full headfirst and and de- deeply mm. into it. So you were doing lots of Zen, and Mm -hmm. uh, you you actually became assumed some kind of a leadership role or significant administrative role in that group, even at a very young age, probably under 20 still,
1: right? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was 19. I shaved my head. I I went to the monastery in France because he has a disciple that runs the monastery in France. And I went there twice for five weeks each time in my – winter break from university and i mean everything about me was clear that my whole life is about zen right and my parents were really freaking out (laughs) even though i hadn't seen anything but they know like every weekend i am in the zen center friday night saturday night and if i'm at home i am Doing Zen in my room, or I am reading about Zen, or I am taking care of the admin tasks of the Zen Center. That that was apart from university, that was my life. Right, and my parents were freaking out. They should um, have been
0: relieved. I mean, what what were other people
1: your <laughs> age doing at that point? You know, exactly, yeah, drugs and other things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, they didn't. They want. They wanted me to be normal, right? right? They didn't want me to. Like, what is this Zen thing? At that time, meditation was not even popular. Nowadays, if you say, I practice meditation, people admire you. At that time, it's like, you're kind of a weirdo. (laughs) So, So, yeah, I was really close to that master. And one day after a retreat, after my first retreat, it came to me the idea, I felt so great, I felt so peaceful, I felt so connected. And then the idea came to me like a lightning. Why don't you make this every day of your life? become a monk. And that idea came to me without any questions attached to it, without any hesitations. It was just kind of like, like a flash of insight, something that is dropped into you. And I immediately accepted it I said like, Yes, that's, that's actually what I want. And then I went to talk to my Zen master, and um, he was not so impressed, but he just said, Okay, you finish your university, because I said, like, should I quit everything and begin now? So said, no, you finish your university. Uh, at that time I was doing uh, law and there was more four years. It was in the very beginning. So he so said, you finish your university and by then, if you still want it, then you can become a monk. And, you also, and had thought, a, course, you also
0: had a girlfriend at the time.
1: Yeah, I also had a girlfriend at the time. And immediately I told her, look, um, this desire has come in my heart. Should we break up or what should we do? Um." And she said, no, let's continue for now and uh, we'll see what we do by time. So that's how things developed. And I I became closer and closer to the Roshi. And for me, he was, um, my link to the Zen tradition, to the Buddhist tradition. You know, in Zen there's this strong idea of the lineage that the Dharma has been passed from generation to generation all the way from the Buddha to the Bodhidharma and then going to China and then going to Japan to Dogenzenji and then going to Moriyama Roshi in Porto Alegre. So it's like, wow, it's it's such an honor to be his, his disciple. So I lived like that for about two to three years. And then one day when he had traveled to Japan, I got a phone call from a very close female disciple in the Sangha. And she said, oh, "Do you have the phone number of Roshi in Japan? I'd like to talk to him." I say, "Yes, I have. Here's the phone number." And then I said, "I noticed that you you haven't been in the in the sangha anymore lately. What's happening?" She said, "Yeah, it's I'm not feeling comfortable about it." And then I said, "Is it the Roshi? I don't know why the idea came. Is it the Roshi?" She said, "Yes." Okay, what's what's the matter with the Roshi? Well, I don't think I should tell you, I mean, you are the closest disciple, the most dedicated one. So in a way you should know, but if I tell you, it's going to affect your life. So I don't know what I should do. So we talked for half an hour and I convinced her to tell me, what do you think I should know? And she said, well, Rosh is my boyfriend. So what do you mean Rosh is your boyfriend? I said, Rosh is my boyfriend. I'm his girlfriend. Um, just like any boyfriend and girlfriend relationship. How old was said, he, he and how old was she? At that time, he was probably 60 and she was probably 45. Oh, so not too big of an age difference, but anyway. Yes, yeah. yes. I said, but he is a celibate monk. How can you be his girlfriend? <laughs> Anyhow, so I, I pressed her for more information and she we were kind of close friends and she shared everything. So I said, so who is paying, like when, when you guys go out together, who's paying? Is it you or him? I said, sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's him. Okay. So the donation money that we are giving to sustain him, uh, he's using today too as well. So all of these things started coming up in my mind. Like I was just confused. I didn't know what to make of it. So we talked for like two hours and we hang up and I said, like, I I don't know what to make sense of this. I'm just going to sleep and let things come clear by time. So little by little, I, oh, and another important point is she said, I think I'm not the only one. And I asked Roshi specifically about this and he said, uh, no, you're the only one. So now I think that there's another girl that she is also the girlfriend. of. <laughs> so then the following day, I went and called that other person who is also my friend. And I said, look, this has come to my attention. Is it true that you are the girlfriend of the Roshi? she said no that's absurd etc 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 okay we finished the call and then i i started thinking like okay so maybe that other person she is making things up or misinterpreting or fantasizing i don't know but then i got a phone call back and saying like no i'm shocked but it's true i'm also the girlfriend of the, the roshi so that for me was a big big disappointment i was not angry at him But I was disappointed because who I thought he was, he was not, you know, um, if he was another type of teacher, it's different. But if he is a Roshi, he's a monk, so he cannot act like that. And he can, not only did he transgress the, the vow in Buddhism that you as a monk should not have sexual intercourse, but he also lied to both of them about them being the only ones. So that for me was the beginning of the end of Zen and I called him after that. I actually called him in Japan and I said, look, um, person A said that she is your girlfriend. And I didn't know that and I said, okay, I see that's all I know reactions. And I said, and she said that you told her that she's the only one I said, yes, yes only one. And and then I said, but I talked to this other person, Person B, and she said that she's also your girlfriend. And she said that you told her she's the only one. So you lied. And I said, no, what me and her speak, only me and her understand. That was his answer. I said, well, she didn't understand. She didn't understand because she's confused also. So anyhow, long story short, little by little. I. I shared the news with the members of the Sangha and to my great surprise, most of them, even though they were surprised and a little bit disappointed, they said, no, but still Roshi is my master. He's a great man. I'm going to continue following him. And for me, that's, that was absurd. Like it doesn't matter what level of realization he has, but his behavior does not match the behavior of a monk and actually does not even match the behavior of a lay Buddhist practitioner. Because you take the five vows, and one of them is not to lie, and the other is not to misuse sexuality.
0: There's a larger issue here, which has been discussed quite a bit on BatGap, and which is in, related to the Association of, uh, for Spiritual Integrity, which I helped found, formerly called the Association of Professional Spiritual Teachers. And that is the whole issue of whether there is a correlation between higher consciousness and ethical behavior and we don't need to spend the whole interview on it. Some people are tired of hearing about it, but some people say there isn't, and you could be a alcoholic, womanizing scoundrel and yet be enlightened. And when I hear that sort of thing, I say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. It renders the term enlightenment utterly meaningless, uh, <laughs> and that enlightenment has um, ramifications for all aspects of life, including your behavior. Um, just to name one but that's a that's that's a big one that's an important one and you you just couldn't be behaving that way and be in any significantly developed state of realization um and to buttress that argument you know we could refer to you know so many different ancient traditions which have all these codes of ethics like patanjali and the buddhist codes and and everything else that that do in fact say that there is this correlation or should be and that um Ethical behavior is not only um, correlated with or a symptom of higher consciousness, but it's conducive to the development of higher consciousness, and that if you're misbehaving in those various ways, then it it renders the mind and physiology more impure, less pure. And that is not conducive to realization, because mental and, and physiological purity is it's essential in terms of honing the instrument fine tuning the instrument so that it can uh, be a fit vehicle for higher realization anyway that 's my little soapbox spiel on that. Uh, I imagine you
1: agree yeah, and I think we're going to go into the topic of new advice soon, and then we can yes. we can discuss that more in depth okay yeah so from from that point, honored um later on, I traveled to Japan because I had um, won a scholarship to study Japanese in Japan and when I was in Japan, I, I actually sent a letter to the Roshi and in that letter I gave my rakusu, which is the thing that you sue the moment that you are becoming a disciple, like it's a very symbolic link, it's like the wedding ring, right, but for, for, the, for the tradition.
0: It's like a physical and, article of some kind?
1: Yeah, so you wear that whenever you, you wear that around your neck whenever you are practicing. And that has the name of your master, and that is like the, the formal link with the tradition. So you mailed so it
0: back to him, did you?
1: Yes. So I I wrote him a letter saying, among other things, I said, "You, I'm deeply disappointed at your behavior. Um, you criticize a lot that Buddhism is decaying, but your behavior is part of the decaying Buddhism. And here is my rakusu. And it was a bit longer than that, but that was the gist of it. And um, so for me, there was a closure, there was a closure with the with the time of Zen. And uh, when the path of Zen um, was finishing, then I was like, Okay, what, what am I going to do next? Enlightenment is still the most important thing in my life. But what is going to be my path? What is going to be my master? Who's going to be my master? And what's going to be my practice?
0: Let me ask you a question. Here. Th- Did you ever sure. have a moment or a brief period where you began to doubt that there was such a thing as enlightenment because you kept being disappointed by various supposed examples of it, or or did you always sort of put those things in perspective and realize that, well, this person is a work in progress, but there, but enlightenment is a real thing, and I still want it.
1: Hmm. I think I started thinking like that. I started questioning, but then I immediately went back to the teachings of the ancient masters, like like the Buddha or Bodhidharma or Ramana, uh, Krishna, Yukteswar, all of these great masters. And because I had read so much in my journey and already been exposed to different paths, that was not the, the all and all for me. So if I didn't have that background, and, and I think that's what happens with many spiritual um, seekers, they don't have a they don't have a strong background in spirituality in the study and understanding of different traditions. And the only way of spirituality that they know is of that master they are currently seeking. So if they discover something about that master, or they get disappointed with it in any way, they may just become cynical about the whole spirituality thing. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: I just want to throw in a point here on that, which is that I think there's a tremendous value in knowledge as well as experience on the spiritual path. And a lot of people don't emphasize that very much and some in fact I've had people say to me recently, "Well, you know forget about all these dead masters and all these quotes and all this stuff. just go by your own experience but if you go by your own experience it's really easy to get mixed up because how do you interpret your experience? knowledge safeguards the path and it actually enables you to appreciate the experience more if you know of its significance for instance, there's an the old example of Let's say you pick up a stone by the road, and it's kind of shiny, and you think, oh, this is cool, and you put it in your pocket. Now, you don't realize it, because you don't have the knowledge, but it's a very valuable diamond, you know, it's quite a large, valuable diamond. But you just think of it as a shiny stone, and maybe you even throw it away after a while, because, yeah, you, you don't know what it is. So, you know, having a clear understanding safeguards the path.
1: Yeah. And comes to mind now a quote of Confucius that, of course, paraphrasing, but he says, there are three means of wisdom Um, by self-reflection, which is the noblest, by imitation, which is the easiest, and by experience, which is the most bitter. So yeah, you can throw away all the knowledge, you can throw away all the experiments that other people have already done in for centuries before you, and they have written down their conclusions and their insights. You can throw all of that away and start from zero based on your own insight and your own heart and your own intuition and you will progress, but it's going to be slow and it's going to be bitter. And if you can instead, it's like a scientist, the scientist doesn't start science from zero, you know, like everything that was already learned and discovered before him, that's the ground on which he stands.
0: Yeah. Sir Isaac Newton said, I stand on the shoulders of giants. and. Um... And science works by consensus. You know, scientist doesn't just say, okay, here's my idea. All the other, if he does, he presents something, all the other scientists jump on it and and say, okay, let we'll test it, you know, and, and they poke holes in it and maybe they find out more. But there's this sort of group effort that builds the body of scientific knowledge and, and also safeguards that, to use the word safeguard again, safeguards it from misinterpretation and misunderstanding and false conclusions.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... I know what you mean, because I have heard that type of argument a lot. Um, A lot of people in the spiritual path, they kind of shun reading and studying, except in Tibetan Buddhism. In Tibetan Buddhism, that is a huge part of the tradition. But if, if you think deeply, that doesn't make much sense, because the ancient masters, the enlightened masters, the ones that have achieved that they are at the end of the path that you're walking, like they have achieved what you want to achieve. They some of them wrote books. So if that was useless, why would I have written books?
0: Yeah. And uh, it might be argued that, well, you know, they wrote in an, an ancient age where we don't have all the understanding that we have in this contemporary age, but there's a saying, that which is closest to truth lasts longest. And the, the stuff they were writing about is truth, you know, capital T, and therefore it should be timeless. And obviously there could be issues with distortions as as things are translated and retranslated and passed down, sometimes just orally for a long time before they're even written. There's that kind of issue. Uh, and uh, and also this person speaks from their level of consciousness and listeners can only hear from their level of consciousness, so translators might garble it up. But nonetheless, there are a lot of gems in these ancient traditions. If we, you know, I just i don't want to talk too much but i just want to add that it's good to have a not a skeptical attitude but a questioning attitude the buddha said this too he said don't don't just accept something because i said it or you know go by your own understanding your own experience but he didn't say don't listen to me so with all these books and all, we don't need to throw the baby out with bathwater and say they're all just mythical nonsense. Nor should we say, oh, it's absolute gospel truth. If it said that Hanuman the monkey flew to the Himalayas from Sri Lanka and brought a mountain back. And we don't necessarily have to accept that that actually literally happened. Maybe it did, but questionable. But there are, there are teachings and gems sprinkled throughout these books that um, can be very
1: valuable. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can be in front of a master in. And- Sit in satsang, but sometimes we can't because the master is far away or the master has died a long time ago. And then, getting a book with the teachings of the master is in really reading it and going deeply into it with an open heart. That is the second best thing too. It's it's a form of satsang in a way. You can get that energy like when you read "I Am That" from Nisargadatta Maharaj or you read the works of Ramana. I've never met any of the two, but it's it's almost as if. You're sitting in their presence. There, the energy comes through the words.
0: Good. And just one more point here. And that is that, you know, we have different faculties. Experiential realization is not really an exercise of our intellectual faculty. It's 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 you know, it's more not it's non-conceptual. But we also have the intellectual faculty, which deals with concepts. We have heart, the heart, which deals with feelings. And there's no reason why all these different faculties shouldn't be employed in the process of spiritual evolution and shouldn't be developed as as we go along to be more and more effective in enabling us to, you know, progress.
1: Mm, Yeah. So typically, we speak of the the four paths, which is the path of jnana, the intellect, the path of raja, uh, meditation, path of bhakti, devotion, and the path of karma, which is uh, action. Then usually they say the path of tantra it's more like the, the path of energy so people who have a people who are more heart people they will feel more attracted to the path of bhakti devotion right people who are more heady they will feel more attracted to the path of jnana but at the same time i like what uh, swami shivananda used to say that we need to develop the yoga of head heart and hands something like that so integrating all of these aspects because um, as a human being, we have to act as a human being, we think, and there are illusions in our thought, in our thoughts. So reading the books and reflecting on the teachings help us to get rid of those illusions. And we also have a heart. We also feel, so we need to purify our heart as well. Yeah. And some people may, might
0: be more predominant in one or another of those things, uh, mm-hmm. but no one is exclusively one of those things to the exclusion of all the others.
1: Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, um, by my own nature, I've always been more into the Jnana yoga path, the path of the the intellect and in, in several sources I've seen masters saying that the Jnana yoga path is the hardest one and it's only for most advanced seekers. And me, in my own arrogance as a as a teenager or in my early twenties, I say like, yes, that's the one for me. Yeah, because like, I'm cool. I'm, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm special. I can do this. <laughs> I can do this. <laughs> and you know, the more I walk the path, the more I see like, okay, there's, I'm I'm not really ready for that path, even though I have walked the path for a decade mm-hmm. and I've had a, a, an experience of awakening which has been a point of no return for me. Still, I see that. I mean, need another lifetime of purification of the mind and uh, making myself sattvic and developing other qualities that other paths emphasize more before I can really get that path and go into the end.
0: That's interesting that you should say that. Um, I believe Shankara said something of that nature, that, um you know, yana yoga is for uh, kind of a s- small percentage of people, and that these other paths are conducive to various aspects of purification to ready one to, for, for the jnana yoga path, if that is going to be one's ultimate, ultimate path, which it may not necessarily have to be for everyone, I mean, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah.
1: So after I left Zen, I kind of fell in love with the teachings of Ramana, which I had read in the past. And that became my, my path for the next 10 years, the path of Advaita. And really having Ramana Maharshi as, as my guru, as my main kind of source of truth. And then I also read and got inspired by Nisagarat Maharaj, Papaji and Muji. But, um, just to, just to speak to what you just said at that time in my life, when it was just the path of Yana Yoga, just the path of self-inquiry, right? I felt the technique to be very, very effective. The technique of through the question, who am I? Removing the attention from everything that is external, including thoughts, feelings, memories, all of that is external to the pure sense of I am. I found it very helpful and very powerful. You were able to do that in, easily? I wouldn't say that I was able to do that easily, but even, even in the beginning of my path, I was having better results with that than with three years of Zen. Hmm,
0: okay. Was it easy for you to switch from Zen uh, practice to this new one, or did you find yourself falling back into the habit of Zen meditation, the way you had been doing it?
1: It was, it didn't happen like this, it happened slowly. So I, I was doing meditation twice a day at that time. So I said, okay, I'm going to be doing Zazen at night and I'm going to be doing self-inquiry in the morning. And then little by little, by little Zazen started disappearing and, and self-inquiry um, dominated. Um, but at that time in my life, that self-inquiry and Advaita and the path of Hatha Yoga was the main thing. Um, I was very disconnected from the body, from emotions. And that had an impact in my relationship with my life, for instance, and in other areas of my life.
0: With, so as a result of Zen.
1: No, as a result of Advaita. Oh, that made you disconnected. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because whenever an emotion arises, if you ask who is the one feeling this emotion, and then you drop the emotion and you dwell in the pure consciousness that is emotionless, you know? Um, so by time I realized that that type of path, if you want to go really deep and hardcore as I was going, um, it's easier if you are alone or a renunciant. And, and in the past, only people who were sadhus or monks were following that path. And people people who were in the world, they were following paths that were a little bit easier to integrate to a more active life. And that took me ten years to realize that. Um, I don't say that people in the world should not follow the path of Advaita or Inana Yoga at all. It's it is very powerful, and if you have that that inclination person should absolutely follow it, but at the same time, you need to bring in other practices that are going to fill the gaps. And you need to know that this type of practice and this type of teaching was created by monks, for monks in a way. In the past, only monks were following it. So you're going to have to translate that into your daily life. You're going to have to to bridge that gap rather than try to apply it literally to every situation. Okay, good. Incidentally, I wanted to just
0: mentioned that those who are listening live, I forgot to say this in the beginning, if you want to ask a question at any point, there's a form at the bottom of the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com, and if you submit your question through there, it'll come to me and I can ask it. Okay, so uh, okay, so you did the Advaita for about 10 years. I think you mentioned that Lakshmana Swami was one of your teachers, is he a living Swami in, in the tradition of Ramana?
1: Yeah, so Lakshwana Swami, I think he's still alive. He was 25 when Ramana Maharshi was in his last year of life. And there is a book called No Mind, I Am The Self by David Godman, who has been in our show. And I read that book and I felt like, well, this is a real guru, a real nyani. There's no doubt about it for me. And he is alive. And there's a chance that I can meet him in India. And in the teachings of Ramana, He speaks a lot about the guru and while many times he says that the guru is the self, the real guru is the self. He also says that if you can be in the presence of a physical guru, that is very, very helpful. Right? So I felt like, okay, my only chance, the only one that I know that is alive in this lineage is Lakshmana Swami. And at that time it was 2000 and December of 2006. He was already 80 something. I just graduated from university. I had to actually beg them to graduate me a month before everyone else so that I could be there for the darshan. And I was there. There were about uh, 30 to 40 people and there was a lot of Shakti, a lot of energy and peace in the environment. And he- Was it in Raman Ashram? No, that is, there's about three blocks away from Raman Ashram. He has his own, it's in his house basically. He has a big garden and that's where the darshan is held. And to give a bit of context in the lineage of Ramana and also much before him, it says that initiation, which is called Diksha, can happen through word, through touch or through Darshan, through the sight. And Diksha is not, Diksha is something that for many Westerners may be a bit hard to understand. It's a, it's a transfer of energy. It's a transfer of grace that actually empowers you to be able to follow the path and to to do the technique effectively. So I wanted the darshan of Lakshman Swami to, to be connected to the path more deeply and to get that grace and that Shaktipat that would allow me to practice self-inquiry. So I was there in his darshan and I was sitting in the fifth row, but I could barely hear him because he speaks such a low tone of voice. But even if I had heard just a sentence, it was his presence was so powerful that Something's happening inside of you just by being in his presence. And I've met many teachers, a couple of gurus, but I've, I've never felt that with anyone else. It's quite extraordinary. And one of the sentences he says is surrender is the easiest path and effort is needed, but grace is also needed. And grace is more, I think he said something like grace is a, a more predominant factor he said surrender to the Lord within surrender to the self within the heart. And when he said that, I on an act of complete surrender, I did exactly that I by the power of his grace, I looked inside, and I surrendered the ego in the heart. And something happened there. It's hard for me to explain what happened. But that was the first point of non return my life, in my my path. Um, The presence of the guru has made the ego dive into the heart, into the self. And of course, it came back. But it was not the same. It was lighter, it was more transparent. And there was a there was a kind of a grace um, helping me pushing me in the path. So I, I, I really consider that an initiation. To Advaita. That's, that's how I felt. So that was, um, after that, I could see him a few times because he would go inside a car every morning and go around Aranachala, doing the um, circumambulation, which is kind of a sacred practice. But he couldn't walk so by car. Um, so I would see him and it was always very powerful to, to be able to be in his presence and sometimes our eyes would meet. So. That was a very powerful event in my path.
0: Okay, and then I have a list of the teachers you've studied with here, and then the next one that comes up is Shiva Rudra Balayogi, who's been on Bat Gap.
1: Yeah, so before that it was Muji. Oh, before Shiva Rudra. Yes. Okay. Well, well, Shiva Rudra Balayogi, I got to know of him in 2005, the same year that I was um, going into Advaita. And uh, we exchanged a couple of emails, which for me is strange, like a yogi is answering an email to a random (laughs) visitor on the website. Um, But I felt like, okay, this man is also self-realized. And I felt like I could take him as a guru, but he self-realized more in the path of Raja Yoga, like really, really hardcore tapas meditation multiple hours a day, etc. And I was, yeah, I was attracted more to the path of Yana Yoga, of self-inquiry. So he was always someone that was on the back of my mind that I admired as a teacher and had some connection. But for the next 10 years after that, until I met him again, um, it was mostly the path of Advaita.
0: Okay. And then who was Ananda? You mentioned that here.
1: Oh, yeah, that comes much after.
0: Oh, okay. I'm getting them mixed That's up. So you just keep telling yeah. your story. I won't try to guide you <laughs> along. <laughs> And we'll, so get, I, we'll get away from your story into all kinds of specific considerations and uh, topics as we go along here too. Oh, yeah. Okay, go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I had read everything of Ramana that I could get my hands into, like maybe 30 books. So I, I really felt I understood how Ramana is, is teaching and what he is about. And then when I went to Tiruvannamalai that year to meet Lakshmana Swami, then, after that, I also walked around the other. There were many satsang teachers around. Um, I think Karl Renz, um, Remananda, there were like many of them. I don't re- even remember their names. But I was going to their satsangs to kind of check it out. And I was like, wow, this is, it sounds like Advaita, but it, it's not really Advaita. <laughs> and that was my first introduction to the world of a new Advaita. Um, yeah, so I, I continue going to the other satsangs, um, just one, going once to each teacher was enough for me just to really have a feel of like, how are people teaching you in this path? What are they, um, um, what are they recommending? What are they emphasizing? What are they missing? Just as an exercise to develop my own discernment into the teachings. And later on, I realized that this is like really, really popular. It's the most. It's the most common way that Advaita Vedanta is being taught, is through the lens of Neo Advaita, and a lot of that is because of a great master called Papaji. Papaji was um, a disciple of Ramana, and he attained enlightenment with Ramana, and he was very hardcore, very true, in my in my own reading. But his way of teaching was emphasizing non-effort. It seems to me that his whole teaching was optimize for getting a person to where they are to that first experience of the self as quickly as possible and for that it's not going to be a decade of meditation that's going to do it it's like it's another type of teaching and pointing and he emphasized a lot non-effort letting go of everything dropping everything and just being quiet here and now and if you're able to do that in the presence of the guru with the guru's grace there, kind of helping you then you may have an experience of the self. But then what happens is from that point, um, many people think that that's it, because they don't have that background, that spiritual study, that spiritual background, they haven't really studied the, the teachings of Ramana. And they think that that's it. And then they become satsang teachers. And that's how neo Advaita happens. Yeah, you have a good article on your site about Neo Advaita.
0: I've read Timothy Conway's whole article, and you, you quote that Timothy's been on that gap a couple of times. But your article lays it out very nicely. I've, I already sent it to somebody who told me they didn't know the difference between Advaita and Neo-Advaita, and she found it very, um, very helpful. But anyway, let's let's talk a little bit about what Neo-Advaita is and how you came to the conclusion that maybe it's not what Advaita is cracked up is supposed to be.
1: Yeah. So Ramana said a couple of things that helps us to understand and navigate this, this, this world, um, of spirituality. One of them he said is there's an experience of liberation that many attain and very few go beyond, right? I'm paraphrasing from memory, so words may be slightly different, but the import of it is exactly this, that as you practice self-inquiry, as you are on the path, you may have an experience of the self. And this experience may be temporary or in some level, it may be a point of no return in some aspects, but it's very easy to get stuck there and to feel that this is it. And from now on, I just have to continue being this and whatever needs to happen is going to happen. And my actions can only be the actions of God or they must be always right because they come from the self and there's only the self. So so that type of thinking starts coming. Another thing that Ramana says is, in the presence of the master, samadhi can occur. But for it to be fully integrated, further effort is required. So Ramana spoke very clearly about the need of effort. He said, as long as there are vasanas, which are our desires, our fears, our prejudices, our thought patterns that are automatic and unconscious, as long as these things exist, you still need further effort to abide and dissolve
0: in the self. Yeah, I wrote down several quotes from your book or copied them. Here's one. Even though the self is the only reality, there's a clear instruction that spiritual practice is essential. Ramana continuously emphasized that only a ripe mind will be able to easily find liberation. For all other seekers, a long period of drying up through purposeful Mm. spiritual practice was needed, according to Ramana. Here's one from Nisargadatta, there are so many who take the dawn for the noon, a momentary experience for full realization, and destroy even the little they gain by excess of pride. Humility and silence are essential for a sadhaka, a seeker, however advanced. Only a fully ripened jnani can allow himself complete
1: spontaneity. Yeah, I like that quote to be pasted on the wall of all satsang (laughs) halls. So that is new Advaita. New Advaita is um, mistaking a temporary realization for the full realization. It ignores a lot of the key elements of the teachings that has uh, ever been there in the Advaita. One of them is the idea of ripeness of mind. So Ramana used to say that there are three classes of, of students or seekers. There are ones that they are like like dry wood. So ones that are like wet wood, ones that are like dry wood, and others are like gunpowder. Uh, so the ones that are like wet wood, they need a lot of practice and drying up, as it says in the quote. So they are ready for the truth. The ones that are like dry wood, they need less practice, they're closer. And the ones that are like gunpowder, they come in the presence of a master, and they just achieve the final, irreversible, ultimate realization. And And the trick is most people think that they are on level two or level three, right? But most likely they're not. I mean, the the level three is people like Papaji, people like Muruganar that came in the presence of Ramana and achieved enlightenment. You can say that even people like Lakshmana Swami, he was probably in category two, like he was a dry wood because he did decades of pranayama and japa practicing mantra by himself for years before he went to to the Ramana and had the awakening. So, what I found in my own journey is that the more I study the teachings, the masters, the tradition, the more I see how long this path is and how far away, in a way, full realization is. So that you really need to be humble and you need, really need to follow the path and the teachings and the practices that you need right now to take the next step in your life. It may be self-inquiry. It may be dealing with your anger, it may be reviewing some negative self-beliefs, it may be learning to concentrate the mind through practicing mantra or, or, or or anything. Um, but we need, we need to have a greater clarity over what the path really is. And this is a, a multi-life project. It's for, 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 for most people, it's a multi-life project and you may, you may be blessed with an experience of awakening quite early on. And that is a blessing. And that's the beginning of the journey, it's not the end.
0: Yeah, I'm totally in agreement with you. Um, Not everyone is, as you know. Some of the objections people bring up to this type of talk is, you know, one is that, well, spiritual practice only somehow reifies or or, um, or increases the sense of a practicer. So it makes the mm-hmm. ego even more, you know, solid, because there's a you who is doing something. And the whole point is to sort of get to transcend the notion of a you that does things. So how would you respond to that particular point?
1: Mm. Well, Ramana understood that point quite well. He said that very well, every practice enforces a sense of ego, because it is practiced by the ego by the I, the individual I. But he, Ramana, who also understood that, said that practice is essential. So why would he say that if it if it
0: reinforces the sense of an I?
1: He also said that it's useless to just remain um, inactive in regard to the path of realization and active in regard to everything else in your life. You say like, okay, doing a practice just reinforces the ego, so I'm not going to do it. But you're doing all sorts of other things in your life that are also coming from the ego. There's a metaphor of using a piece of stick to move all the other stick into the fire. And then when all the wood is in the fire, then you throw that that one last. But if you throw that one before everything is in the fire, then you have no means to burn all the other wood. the, The path is many times described as crossing a river from samsara to nirvana. Right? From ego to self, from individuality to consciousness. But to cross this river, you need a boat. And if in the middle of the journey, you say like, hey, no one on the other side of the river has a boat. Right? And I'm going to have to give up this boat anyhow. So let me give it up now. If you do that, you're left with no other means to move forward. You're probably going to drown.
0: Okay, so that, yeah, that's a good metaphor. Ramana was also fond of the saying, it takes a thorn to remove a thorn. Ultimately a practice might not make sense because of the reasons people bring, you know, raise, that you, you, you know, there is no practicer or you're only going to reinforce the sense of a practicer. Um, yeah. But a certain, at a certain stage, you know, that might be just what you need. I mean, sometimes, sometimes even people accuse practice of being like a crutch. But if you have a broken leg, you actually could use a crutch. (laughs) You know, it helps
1: you Mm -hmm. uh, until the leg heals, and then you can throw the crutch away. Yeah. Otherwise, it might never heal. Yeah. Right? Mr. said this, that you cannot leave a mess and go beyond.
0: Interesting point. You cannot
1: cannot leave a mess behind and go beyond, right? It's, It's almost impossible to go from a very tamasic ego, from a very kind of gross, exteriorized, materialized ego, to no ego you might be able to do that jump occasionally for a short period of time but your psyche your you don't have the structure to just stay there you're going to be pulled back yeah and you've heard this the term spiritual bypassing i'm sure yeah yeah so that's right yeah so that what's happened they have that experience okay and then they say well this seems more true than than all that mass that i'm leaving behind right So I'm going to affirm this and I'm going to deny that. So spiritual bypassing is based on denying where you are, not being honest with yourself, um, not seeing things clearly you in, in Zen, they have this saying, which is attachment to emptiness, which is also known as the Zen sickness. It's very hard once you, that's why they spoke against it because it's very hard once you get that experience like some people will just feel like saying "No, oh, you know this is it i am the self there is only the self i've seen it so everything else must only be an illusion so why should i work to change any of that it doesn't make any difference to the self yeah and it doesn't make any difference to the self but it makes a difference to the self in manifestation which is who you are right now whether you recognize it or not. You are to self-manifestation.
0: Yeah. There's another saying, I think it's the Chandogya Upanishad, it says, into great, into great darkness go those who worship ignorance, into even greater darkness, as it were, go those who worship knowledge. And I think what that means is that, you know, this sort of fixation on the um, the absolute view to to the exclusion of relative considerations, such as practices or ethics or any of that other stuff
1: can get you in the hot water. Yeah. They also say that a truth misunderstood causes much harm. And the greater, the highest, the higher the truth that is misunderstood, the higher is the damage. And maybe that's why in the past, if you wanted to learn Advaita, you couldn't buy a book in the bookstore. You know, It doesn't work like that. You would have to serve a master for 12 years. And in those 12 years, he's not teaching you Advaita. He's teaching you humility, he's teaching you to let go of the ego, he's teaching you the precepts, how to learn, how, how to be in the world, and he's teaching you more basic practices such as pranayama, japa, etc. And at the end of 12 years of preparation, of self purification, if you are deemed worthy, he will teach you the ultimate truth. And that truth will land on a very different mind than the mind that it would land on 12 years ago.
0: Yeah. If anybody's listening to this and they disagree with the, the things that we're saying, go ahead and send in a question and we'll, I'll ask it because, I mean, Giovanni and I are pretty much birds of a feather here, but we're open to hearing reasonable objections to what we're saying. And you can see how people kind of don't like this line of talk because it sounds like a lot of work. I've got to spend 12 years doing what, you know, and I, <laughs> and before I reach... and. and there's there's a sort of a, a resonance effect I think that takes place when you read a lot of uh, Ramana or other you know beautiful spiritual books. You kind of entrain, if you know that word. You, you sort of tune in to what it's saying, and it actually does sort of lift you to a higher state as you're as you're reading that. And you you can if you read enough of it, you can actually come to feel that you've got it. You know I mean it's the world is an illusion, I am that, and, you know, there is no person, and there is no free will, and all these kind of concepts, you kind of get them uh, ingrained into your psychology. But I have a feeling that in most cases, it's a far cry from what the experience could be if one were really living that and not mistaking
1: an intellectual understanding of it for the the living of it. And it can be really hard to make that shift, because as we can learn from the way Papaji teaches, ignoring all the effort, ignoring all the preparation, ignoring the ego and the mess, and just trying to be here and now, letting go of everything and keeping quiet, that can lead to an experience that is extraordinary. It's, it's a milestone in the spiritual life that is very significant. But then moving forward to that, it's not doing the same thing again and again and again and again that is going to help you. Okay, now, now you have seen it. You have, you have seen the truth. Okay, now there's still a gap between how how you're functioning as, or there's a gap between consciousness functioning as the ego Giovanni or the ego Rick or the ego whatever and the pure consciousness. There's a gap, and I I may be wrong, but I don't think that that gap is going to be crossed by just going again and again and again, trying to go again and again and again to that experience, um, or, or maybe it will, but you too require a very specific type of mind that is very strong and that is able to hold on to that. And you know, Ramana said that uh, self-inquiry begins when you hold on to the self and you are beyond all thoughts, begins. Um, Most people would say like, okay, I have done very little self-inquiry then. So if self-inquiry only begins, then, then we really need to be humble about what we're doing. We are in the preparation. are in the path of purification of the mind. And it's very clear, Ramana also said that only a sattvic mind, a pure mind can grasp the truth. So if your mind is not sattvic yet, and you had an experience of the truth, then your path now should be to make the mind sattvic.
0: Yeah, you know, some people might be scared off by the word effort. Because the thought of having to sit for an hour or two a day doing something effortful doesn't sound very appealing and having to do that for years on end before you get anywhere. My own experience, and I think yours might be similar, was that from day one, the experience was so enjoyable that effort really is not a relevant word. And in fact, what I learned to practice actually didn't involve effort and and it was explicitly instructed not to use effort but to just sort of be very natural and effortless with it um but it was so gratifying from day one that, that and i was not a very disciplined person i had dropped out of high school and everything and got kind of arrested a couple of times but uh you know it was it was easy for me to stick with because it was so enjoyable um, it was self-motivating it was it was like you know eating a delicious piece of food or something you you want it. you you want to keep eating it because it's so good. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is a very important point, a very important shift because if you can learn to enjoy your practice, then you will continue doing it. Yeah. Like any, yeah. It's deeply ingrained in our system, in our brain, in our biology that we will avoid pain and we'll seek pleasure. So if you can find pleasure in your practice, if you can find an immediate benefit in your practice, not the enlightenment that may happen seven lives from now, seven lives from now, right? But some immediate benefit and enjoyment. Then you will continue to the practice. They need to not be a struggle. It's just like, yeah, it's just part of my life. The more I do this, the better I feel. So why would I not do it?
0: Yeah, exactly. And also when you say enjoyment, um, you know, some, if we compare it to sensory enjoyment, there are a lot of sensory things that you can enjoy, but you get sick of them after a while. But the kind of enjoyment we're talking about here is not like that. It doesn't get you you know, disgusted through repeated experience, it actually becomes more and more charming.
1: Yeah. And, but most people will say, look, spiritual practice, yeah, I kind of feel calm and centered after that, but it's not really enjoyable. A lot of the times feels like work. Looking at my shadows and working through all of this mess feels like a lot of work. But if, if you understand that this is, this is the best thing that you can do for yourself right now, not because maybe in the future, you may have awakening. But if you feel that right now, the more you follow these teachings, the better you live, then you will continue even though sometimes maybe difficult and painful.
0: Yeah, well, that's good to emphasize too, because if we make it sound too rosy, then it's not realistic. Because there's, you, know, you mentioned purification, if purification is going to occur, there's going to have to be a release of impurities. And release of impurities can be rather un- an unpleasant process while we're going through it.
1: Yeah. In some paths, like the path of bhakti yoga, which is the path of devotion, the seeker kind of falls in love with a version of the divine. In India, at least, it usually has a name and a form, um, but that is just like an icon. It's not that God is that name and form. The name and form is something that you used to focus the mind and the feeling towards God but the interesting thing about this path which is not a natural path for my own inclinations um, but a benefit of it is that because you're falling in love with a version of the divine there is a sweetness to it right so it's kind of there's an enjoyment to it the more you you love and are devoted to the divine in a form the more you feel that enjoyment right so that is something to be said for the bhakti path that can make this transition easier yeah there's a principle here, which I think
0: might apply to any path, which is that all beings have a natural tendency to want to seek a field of greater happiness, you know whether it's a dog chewing on a bone or uh, you know a person falling in love or a, You know, if we're sitting and talking and some beautiful music comes on, our attention effortlessly shifts to it, there's just this natural innate drive that all beings have to seek a field of greater happiness. And the thing we're talking about here is traditionally described as being the greatest happiness, bliss, ananda, happiness beyond any relative sensory experience. And so, any step in the direction of that, uh, if it's a genuine step, if, if we're really moving in the direction of that, should result in some greater happiness. And that's, a, in a way, that's the litmus test for whether it's a valid step or not. And uh, and so, if it does, then as you as you were just saying, it's self reinforcing. You know, we just sort of naturally get into the groove of continuing to take steps in that
1: direction because it pays off as we do. Yeah, and if you think about it, lately meditation has become quite popular and quite mainstream. Right? And meditation is only one of the several practices in the spiritual path. I even wrote an article, the seventy-six benefits of meditation. <laughs> so there's sci- there's scientific research proving that meditation is good for all sort of things. Oh yeah. So if you meditate daily, you spend the rest of your life meditating, and you never achieve any experience of awakening. Okay, let's say worst case scenario, still you have lived much better. And if instead you spend that half an hour or one hour a day watching Netflix. Yeah. I mean, chances are it, it may lower your
0: blood pressure and improve your brainwave coherence and do all kinds of things, you know, uh, that, are, that are good for you. I mean, you know, these days stress is a big deal and, um, and people and depression is a big deal. I mean, most of people in the United States are on some form of antidepressant. So even if it were only these mundane benefits, as you just said, mm-hmm it's a great thing to add to your
1: life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then looking at enlightenment as a north, right? Not as a hard goal, not as something that I have to achieve, but a north. A north. Something what do you mean I'm, by that north? It's, it's, it's where I'm pointing to. It's where I'm walking towards. I see. Yeah, All it's my the, direction. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's my direction in life. It's not something that I expect to arrive at anytime soon. It's just where I'm walking towards. And then if you have that attitude, it's, it's much less likely that you will feel disappointed at how much work there is to do and and how much far away you are from that ideal. Because no, it's, it's just the direction I'm walking towards. And then if I can enjoy my path as I'm going, and if I can see benefits in other areas of my life, and if part of me can sometimes even enjoy the practice, then why not? Is there anything better to do?
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you sent me a bunch of points and um, I want to start going through them because these are interesting and each one of them is a springboard to something we can talk about. Um, But we've already talked about a couple of them with regard to your journey, but there was also an important stage in your journey with Muji. You had an awakening with Muji. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Okay. So at that time, it was a time in my journey where I was practicing self-inquiry compulsively. It was always there for me. Any thought, any emotion, I would always kind of not any thought, it was a bit exaggerated, but any emotional that would any emotion that would arise, I would immediately ask who's the one perceiving this and kind of dissolve it back into the self. And doing Throughout that the multiple day, times a day. 20,
0: 24 hours a yeah, day.
1: For didn't, emotions, yes. Didn't it kind of divide your mind to do that? Or? Well, I am by nature I'm not a very emotional person. So there are not that many emotions. But emotion is something that is very close to the ego. It's something that is very ingrained in the ego. So for trivial thoughts, I wouldn't bother so much. But when an emotion arises, then I would ask that question. Um, And then, of course, also in my one hour a day that I'm only doing that. And then I was also watching Muji Satsangs at that time, like maybe two hours a day. So I was really doing as much as I can to dive into that truth and, and to experience that. And then what happened is in February, 2010, I was in Tiruvannamalai. And at that time, Muji used to walk around the mountain with a small group of devotees early in the morning. And after a walk, we would sit in a chai shop and there was a spontaneous sign that would occur. Maybe we were like 20 people. But before that, let me just come back a little bit and say, I also had some experiences when I was meditating as if like, I'm going to die. I'm going to completely disappear because that's what self-inquiry is doing. Right. It's a Saduan calls it an ego suicide. Right. It's, um, so, but when you actually are close to that, there is this fear that arises right? and by nature, I'm not a fearful person, but this fear arose in the middle of meditation and then I thought, I have lived as an ego, as an individual for many lifetimes, like all of us. I want to go forward with this and if it's going to be the disappearance of me, let it be. I, I'm, I'm not going to be afraid, let, let it happen. And I feel that releasing that fear like that, it, it never came back anymore. Uh, that kind of prepared the ground. So in 2010, I was having that, uh, I was in Tiru, and I was having that walk with Muji and then we sat in a, in a chai shop and then we were all quiet. and he started the satsang by saying, you are the absolute awareness. And that is a sentence that is a very Advaita sentence. It's a sentence that Muji had said multiple times, maybe in every satsang in one form or another, he says that. But that time, that sentence went through me completely. It was as if the eye of consciousness had blinked and the whole universe had blinked out of existence. And for an instant, there was only the self, self-aware. And then it blinked back into existence. And I was like, "I, w- I didn't know what had happened. It's just silence. It was something very different from what I had ever experienced. Something had dropped. Something had dropped. I didn't know what it was. And then I was quiet, very, very quiet inside. And went home, went to the morning satsang. And in the afternoon, I had an interview with Muji. Because Muji had asked me a few days ago, he had mentioned kind of casually, like, I would like to be interviewed by someone that asks really good spiritual questions. At that time, he hadn't been interviewed by you yet. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, okay, Muji, if you like, I will come up with some questions that can be helpful for the great majority of seekers and I'll interview you. And said, okay, I would love that. So I had prepared those questions like beforehand. And that afternoon was the day that I had to ask to have that interview with Muji. So we went down for that interview and I was already in that altered state. And there were maybe five or six students around Muji, me and other five or six, very small. And as I'm going through the questions and, and asking the questions kind of on behalf of everyone that could be watching that interview. At a certain point, Muji looked at me and said, all these questions are good, but they are not your questions. I'm not being, he's saying, I am not being pulled to answer powerfully because they are not your questions. I said, yes, Muji, you asked me to ask on the behalf of everyone. He said, no, but, Muji was saying, I I need someone that comes to me and he's powerfully wanting to be liberated. And then at that time, in my mind, the thought came, okay, let me try to do this one more time. And with all my being, I kind of tried to reawaken that feeling like, okay, I want to be liberated. That's all I want a hundred percent liberate me now. And then as I was trying to do that, I realized that I couldn't, it didn't make any sense. It would be to create a fake sense of I in order to be a seeker for that I to then be dissolved.
0: So you'd already kind of moved on from this intense seeker energy and
1: you didn't, you didn't want to whip it up again. Yeah, I tried, but it just wasn't, wasn't happening. That, that psychological structure wasn't there anymore. So I, I just couldn't, I couldn't play that role for Muji, but I feel, I feel that something in him got triggered. Like maybe he felt that and he responded to that. And soon the satsang finished and after the cameras were off. We are all kind of sitting quiet, silence. And then Muji began to speak. And at that time I had already watched dozens of satsangs of Muji and been in dozens of satsangs of Muji. But I had never seen him speak the way he was speaking at the end of that satsang with the cameras off. It was coming from a different place. And there was a dense silence in the room. And he continued speaking like that for maybe 20 to 30 minutes. It's like he was channeling the absolute. That's the feeling I had. And after he left, like the five of us, we just continued there in silence. And a couple of people came to me and said, thank you for these questions. I've never seen Muji like that. I said, I've never seen Muji like that either. Unfortunately, the cameras were off at that time. <laughs> but that was the day that um, the bi- a big shift happened in me and I had no idea what had happened, and I had no desire to understand it. Over the next few days, I was just spending hours and hours in my room, laying down on my bed, staring at the wall, doing nothing, just kind of being empty and silent, and just going out for satsang and for meals, basically. I went to Muji and I said, what's happening? Muji, I'm in this state, and I'm just hours and hours in nothingness, looking at the walls. And he said, and I am busy talking to people and running satsangs. Can we swap bodies? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. Uh, So, so that was it. That was, there was a sense of, um, I knew that something had shifted and I had no idea what it was and I had no desire to understand it, but in the next months, uh, in my life and the next years, I was just kind of marinating into that and allowing that to, to reveal itself And intuitively, I know that this is not the end. This is a powerful milestone, but it's not the end. Um, So I continued doing my self-inquiry. I just had no more inclination to be a seeker or even to read anything about spirituality. And it continued like that for about four years. And that was the same time that I moved to Australia. So it was good that I was not into that spiritual thirst anymore because I needed my energy to make things work on the external world with the migration and new career, etc. What is your career? Do you,
0: you have a career outside of meditation stuff?
1: Well, so at that time when I moved to Australia, I started becoming a programmer. I taught myself programming and made a job as a, made a life as a programmer for five years here before I then quit the job. Uh, and I'm doing this all the time now. Okay, good. So in it, light of your beautiful experience with Muji, what do you, make of what's going on these days with Muji? Mm. I saw that article, I didn't read it line by line, but I, I skimmed through that article uh, um, that came out about a month or two ago. And um, I don't know if those facts are true, if those things that they say are true about his involvement with other women, etc. So I cannot judge him and I don't wish to judge him in any way. The only thing I can do is share my own discernment about this. And I think every seeker needs to develop their own discernment in the path. And that discernment is about themselves, but it's also about the teachings and the teachers so that they can they can find at every moment what really speaks to them. And my discernment was empowered by the framework of the Buddha of the four levels of awakening or enlightenment right? So in level one, there is the experience of non-self, right? So there is a, a drop of the identity. That's just level one, right? In level two, then the desire and fear and aversion, they greatly diminish. In level three, they are overcome. And then in level four, all forms of desire, pride, attachment, etc., everything is dropped. So looking at this framework, I understood that what had happened for me was level one. And I later spoke about this experience with a couple of Buddhist teachers that have been in in your uh, show, by the way, and they said, like, yeah, that that sounds like level one. So I said, okay, so if what happened to me is level one, then what's, where is Muji in the scale? I felt like from my understanding of the Buddha's teachings and Ramana's teachings, I feel that he's in level two. Um, so in level two, desire, fear, and aversion are greatly diminished, but they haven't disappeared. And if they haven't disappeared, there is chance that moved by these poisons of mind, the seeker, and he's still a seeker at that stage, the, the seeker is bound to do certain things that are not, that are not conducive to his further growth and to the growth of the Sangha, if he has already taken a teaching role. So I don't know exactly what happened in the Sangha. I don't know what Muji did. It would not break my worldview if all of those things were true. I mean, it, it would break my worldview if those things were true about Ramana yeah. or about Buddha, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But um, about Muji seeing him within this larger spectrum, it wouldn't it wouldn't break my worldview. So I think those things might be true. And I think um, Muji, is a master that I'm deeply grateful for Muji because it was because of him that I could have that experience. And I'm sure that other people have had similar experiences in one level or another. And Muji continues to serve the seekers out there. But when you understand the deeper context of things, then you understand like, okay, Muji is not a perfected master. Right? And if he's not a perfected master, then he may do things that are not helpful to you as a student following Muji. And therefore you need to keep your discernment alive. You need to keep the eye of consciousness kind of alive, not suspicious, not cynical. Like if you take Muji or any of these masters as your guru, there should be a a certain level of trust and surrender, but at the same time, um, you should keep your discernment alive. And when your discernment says that some things are not right, then that doesn't mean you need to leave that master, but you just see him within a bigger context yeah it seems to me that
0: any really good teacher is never going to tell you to discard your discernment, your discrimination. In fact, they would probably encourage you to use it. You know they would have an attitude of ask me anything you know if if you have doubts, air your doubts you know I don't mind uh, I can deal with it. I can't comment on what the scene might be around muji with, in that regard, but I think that that's a healthy attitude, and like you say. That kind of attitude doesn't contradict the notion of being trusting and kind of innocent. You don't have to be a cynic and doubt everything, but just to sort of be honest about what you know and what you don't know and to feel comfortable asking about anything that you don't know or that might trouble you. Yeah. Because that's how doubts get dispelled, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, there are a couple of interesting and polemic points in in what you said. The first is, so if you think that if the master hasn't achieved that final ultimate awakening, he's still a work in progress, right? So he still has shadows. So if he's still a work in progress, he still needs to be practicing something to keep purifying the mind and growing, right? But um, the trick with new Advaita is that there's this concept that all practice is illusory and the search is illusory and you should give up the search. and I wouldn't really classify Muji as not a uh, new Advaita, um, but there are some traces of a new Advaita in his teachings, just as uh, there are traces in the teachings of Papaji, which is a master that I absolutely respect and, and think he's he's there level three or four. But because there are those th- there's that idea that there's no need to practice anything, that all comes from the ego, which seems to me to be the story that Muji is kind of promoting to himself and others, I'm not sure how much self-reflection will happen to change certain things. So if the teacher knows that he's a work in progress, and he's acting like a work in progress, that's better. Yeah.
0: Yeah, some some of the teachers I respect most, like Adyashanti and Shakti Maji and others, they always say that, you know, that I'm, I'm a work in progress, they never try to give the impression that they're finished and that they don't have anything more to learn
1: or grow into. You know, Shankara, that was another framework that uh, was very helpful for me was what Shankara said about full awakening or realization. He said that there are three obstacles. There's ignorance, there is impurity, and there is dissipation of mind. Ignorance, impurity and dissipation of mind. And New advaita works only in the ignorance part, right? So at the end of that path, you have less ignorance or you have no ignorance about who you are. But because there's still impurities in the mind, the form of vasanas, and there's still dissipation of the mind, your mind cannot, right? Then that realization is not permanent. And unless you address those two elements, it's not going to be.
0: Yeah, I would also question whether you could really actually be totally clear on who you are, you know, the first point, if there are vasanas and impurities, because, it, you know, sure, you could have glimpses, I'm sure you could have glimpses, but I have a feeling that the vasanas and impurities and the agitation of the mind would prevent a really genuine, clear, stable self-realization. They, they just wouldn't allow it. So it, chances are, if, if you've dwelt a lot on Advaita principles, but haven't taken care of the purification, that you're going to end up mistaking an intellectual understanding for that, for realization.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's part of the preparation that would happen in those 12 years that the disciple would go through before. That's the thing. It's just became clear now as I speak. They would leave the ignorance, the, the final ignorance about the ego to be tackled at the end. Because if you tackle that at the beginning, there's the risk of happening what happens with new Advaita. They just said, okay, the ego is an ignorance. Why? It's an illusion. Why should I do all those other efforts? But if you have already gone through that, you have already purified your mind, you have already, you have a mind that you can stay still in a single point without distraction, then the truth becomes clear to you. Ah, Then it does the magic.
0: Yeah. And you know, some people might think it's odd that there's this tradition of secret teachings and you don't get the higher teachings until you have progressed through all these different stages but i think we've kind of addressed it here and that is that a teaching that could be extremely helpful at a certain advanced stage could actually be harmful at a more preliminary stage because you're not capable of understanding it and you're you're going to, it may confuse you or you may end up misapplying it in some way
1: mm-hmm. and that depends on the discernment of the the teacher or the seeker to know like am i there to do that type of teaching and practice or not and it's hard sometimes we're going to misjudge and the more spiritually mature we become, the better is going to be our conclusion about these things. Until then we're going to, we're going to make mistakes and judge that we are at one point that we're not.
0: And of course, in this, these days, all the teachings are out there. So it's not like you can have them fed to you spoon by spoon as, as you progress. It's like you can look it up. But you know, the Advaita is part of it, Vedanta. And Vedanta mm-hmm. means the end of the Veda and mm-hmm. the end means like the you know the kind of final teaching but it doesn't mean that all the previous teachings of the veda are irrelevant or useless they all have their function in leading you up to the point where the end teaching is germane is is relevant to you
1: mm-hmm. yeah and another point that you mentioned that i myself question a lot is cuz you said no real teacher would ask you to let go of your discernment and be like hundred percent blindly devoted F- from my study. I see in a lot of Indian traditions, apart from Buddhism, in a lot of Indian traditions, the guru bhakti, the devotion to the guru is so emphasized. It's like such an important element. And in many texts and traditions, you even see, say them saying things that. Like you have to give yourself up to the guru and have no personal preference, no personal, like the guru, whatever the guru says, is an order. There's no questioning. There's no hesitation. If the guru has flaws, you don't look at it because that's going to be unhelpful for your own growth, right? So those teachings exist, okay? And they are there and they are traditional and they are dangerous, but they are also true in my point of view.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, actually. I mean, I think in probably a small percentage of cases that might really work, you know, and generally speaking, it would be a case where there's a close personal relationship with the guru and perhaps you're living a recluse lifestyle, you know, you don't have all kinds of other worldly responsibilities and you could just become like a, an iron filing around a magnet, you know, that just sort of is in, you know, stuck in the, in, the, in the immediate orbit of that guru. But, boy, that's 1% of the cases. The other 99 have been cases of, of abuse.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's something that I would, I mean, for the West, that doesn't work. I would never promote these ideas. People that are ready for them, they will come and get to those ideas by themselves. But the, the other important point is that that only works with a 1% of the gurus also, not only 1% of the. So I, I, w- I wouldn't do that with a guru on a level one or two. Because there's still a chance that they still have desires and aversions and vasanas, etc. on a certain level that may still be harmful for you, right? And there are very few gurus that are that elevated that you can actually practice that safely. Yeah, I don't think I can name one.
0: Um, (laughs) And if I can name one, I don't think he's asking people to do that. You know? yeah. And so if anybody asks you to do that, chances are it's not one of those ones that you should trust with it. And so run the other yeah, way. Yeah, i would probably agree. I'll probably agree. <laughs> yeah. A few good questions have come in. Let me ask you a few of these questions. Um, here's one from Nikola Svetkovic from Belgrade, U- Yugoslavia. Uh, he, I think it's a woman. She asks, how can one function in the world without ego? Many scholars have the interpretation that the world only exists from the point of view of the ego.
1: Hmm. From my understanding, uh, a level of ego is always retained, even after realization. The metaphor that Ramana uses for this is that it's like a burnt rope. It still looks like a rope, but it cannot be used to tie anything. So your ego will still function like an ego. On some levels, on some very satific or verified levels, it will still function like an ego as long as consciousness is embodied. But it cannot tie you anymore, it's cleaned up, it's it's harmless. And if it's not harmless, it means that there's further work to be done. And for everyone else, for for all of us on the path, I would say that the, the priority shouldn't be to, to think of destroying the ego or overcoming the ego, but rather to purify the ego, to move from a tamazic and rajazi ego to a more sattvic ego.
0: Yeah, I've heard. Various people say that you can really, if you're going to drop the ego, you can actually really only drop a healthy ego. (laughs) So, you know, you can't drop one that's weak and impure. So there really has to be a lot of strengthening and purification
1: before you can think about, you know, becoming egoless. It's like the question, how can we cross the river without the boat? Now, you use the boat until the very, very moment. When you can jump out of the boat and land on Land? Then you're good. Yeah. Yeah, then you're good. Yeah. Here's a question that came in from
0: from Aaron Morton from Dunedin, New Zealand. Aaron asks, how important is the role of self-inquiry together with devotion? I guess the idea is, can the two of them go hand in hand?
1: I think it can. If in your inclination, in your heart, you feel that they're both helpful for you right now, then practice them both together. After I've been with uh, Lakshmana Swami that that Darshan experience, my path for a while became more of a self surrender path, rather than a self inquiry, because that's what he taught surrender to the self in the heart. And at that time, they were kind of happening together. So yeah, they can be done together.
0: Okay. So there's a section of the notes you sent me, Um, there are like, six different sections and I think we pretty much, well, actually. There's one that we didn't cover yet in section one of your notes. Uh, you mentioned yoga and tantra, and then you talked samadhi, mantra, and trataka. I think everybody knows what samadhi and mantra mean, and even maybe what tantra means, But and yoga. Mm-hmm. But what is trataka?
1: Trataka is the meditation practice of gazing.
0: Gazing, okay, like at a candle or at the wall. It's,
1: or... Yeah, it's usually done at a candle, but uh, it can be a dot on the wall, it can be the moon, it can be an object, it can be a photo of your guru, it can be anything. And the purpose is to concentrate the mind. So I think the, um, the context for that note is as I moved, as I kind of had the uh, awakening in Advaita, why did I, when, when the search reawakened for me four years after, uh, why did I go back to Advaita? Well, it's because of that understanding from Shankara's framework of the three poisons and the Buddhist framework of the four levels of awakening. I realized that what I need most in my journey right now is the ability to purify the mind and concentrate the mind, like remove the dissipation of the mind. And there are a lot of things in the, the Ramana teachings that says the same thing. And then I thought, okay, what of all the methods of focusing the mind, of all the methods of concentration, which ones are going to be most helpful for me? Is it going to be to focus on the I am, which is like the most subtle of all subtle things? Or no, probably according to the yogis, you start by mastering your mind, focusing on things that are more concrete, like a mantra. Mantra is a sound, right? It's kind of concrete or something that you're gazing that's concrete. Yeah, have you ever done mantra practice? Yeah. So nowadays, mantra and trataka are my main practices. Okay. Where did you get your mantra? I got initiated by a tantric guru in India and he gave me a mantra.
0: Okay, good. second section of your notes is about um, the gradual versus direct path. And uh, I think this is interesting. I I, um, hosted a panel discussion at the Science non durality Conference on this very topic. And so I'll go through some of the points that you wrote down. We can talk about them. One is you say, your first point, maturity bias of the masters. What does that mean?
1: Okay. So this is something that I have realize that helps me put things in perspective in the path is that masters like Ramana Maharshi, that they are at the top. When they teach, they were like us so many lifetimes ago that they don't really they have lost that context. So what I found in They've forgotten studying what many, it's like to be us, like us. To be a beginner, right? So yeah. they, they can see us. They can see us and maybe some masters can even read our minds. But Sometimes the teachings and the, pra- the practices, the advices that they give require a, a level of strength and purity and that we, we just don't have. I see. So it seems to me that the more, with some rare exceptions, the more advanced the master is, the, the kind of more hardcore will be the teachings and the more difficult it will be for the great majority of seekers to really, I mean, you will need something to bridge the gap. While teachers that are more closer to us in terms of, uh, of of maturity and progress, they understand better what it is to struggle with what we struggle, to be where we are on the path. And they can give things that are more, um, maybe more concrete and more helpful for that next step that we need to give.
0: Yeah, There's a saying in India, which is that when the mangoes are ripe, the branches bend down so that people can easily pick the, the fruit. And uh, I think it, it's possible, I think, for a teacher to be very high, and yet to have the flexibility to teach at, at all kinds of different levels, so he can sort of meet people where they're at. In fact, Ramana was somewhat famous for being able to do that. He would say different things to different people according to their um, orientation, their aptitude, their level of development. But it's an interesting point. I mean, I mean, I started teaching meditation when I was twenty-one years old, and I remember some one time I was teaching. I've you know, been meditating two or three years. And and some guy said, I want to be like you. And I thought, what in the world would you want to be like me for? <laughs> you know, I'm, just, I'm kind of a beginner. I just have this ability. To, I've been taught to teach you this systematic thing. But it's like, you know, a, a kid goes to school, first grade, comes home and his little sister says, what did, what did you learn? And he said, well, I learned A and I learned B and I learned C. And she said, oh, what else did you learn? He said, well, well, I'll tell you to borrow after I go back. Uh, so, you know, we can teach something, if we, even though we may not have the highest teaching, we can be of value. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that's the point in this in this understanding of that the advanced masters may have a maturity bias. That means that there is a space for other teachers on the path that are less developed. to to fill in that role, because if I need to, if if I don't know basic arithmetics yet, and I need to learn arithmetics a little, I mean, I don't need to go to the PhD of mathematics. Right, it's gonna be a waste of his time, and you Yeah Maybe he can teach me, maybe he can teach me arithmetics very well, right? But maybe that guy who teaches arithmetics, and that's all he teaches all day long, student that he's on that level, maybe he knows how to teach that part better for people that are on that level the reason why that was important for me is i always wanted to go to the highest teaching and and the most advanced master and the most direct path and i realized that sometimes that's not what's most helpful
0: it's a good point you know because somebody some people complain about all these teachers out there Offering satsang, to little groups, and offering webinars and all that stuff, and they, you know, they say, well, there's so few teachers that are really grade A teachers, you know, like Ramana and Papaji, but um, I think we're in a time where it's appropriate for there to be armies of <laughs> teachers running around, able to teach to a certain niche, you know, a certain group. In fact, when I became a teacher, one of the things that Marishi Mahesh Yogi said to us was, he said, when there's a war on, there's no time to train sharpshooters, just give them a gun and send them out. And so he gave us some basic instructions on how to teach. And, you know, we're just like kids, basically sent us out and it had some effect.
1: Yeah. So it's just important to keep in mind that the best teacher, the best path, the best practice for you is what is helpful for you to give the next step.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay.
1: I think we've covered that.
0: Well, we've covered some of these other points in Group One of your points. What does this one mean? The high standards of the yogis. And then you have Shiva Rudra Balayogi in parentheses.
1: Yeah, so that's again about the maturity bias. So Shiva Rudra Balayogi is someone I have spent time with, and I've, I've been in ashram in India, etc. We were kind of close for a certain period of time, but he and his masters, he and his master Shiva Balayogi say that uh, meditation is when you can spend at least an hour without a single thought arising if you cannot do that you're trying
0: to meditate you're not meditating right so So that's going to be pretty frustrating to the average person who hears that instruction they're going to think
1: that is the the most demotivating thing i've ever heard (laughs) (laughs) and you know what i i dug a little bit and i asked other disciples and other devotees, including the Ambaji, who she's the one that has been with the Shiva Vedrabhalyogi from the very beginning, can you stay an hour without a thought, just focusing here, which is where the the teaching is, he said, no, and I don't know anyone who can. Good. Yeah. Okay. So so there's a big disconnect from where we are to where he sees us the beginning, right? And maybe his teachings are not the most helpful in helping us bridge that gap.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a saying that a person could be sitting on the top of a mountain and he can be shouting out instructions, shouting out a description of what he experiences from the top of the mountain, the view he has from the top of the mountain. But that's not necessarily going to be really helpful to people who are climbing the mountain. You know, what he needs to offer, or someone needs to offer is instructions about where they are, uh, in their progress up the mountain that you know watch out for this rock watch out for this avalanche you know go over this way and, and so on that's that's what's actually going to get them to enjoy the same view that the guy at the top of the mountain has
1: yeah and that's the role for teachers like you and me and many people who have come to your to your um podcast is we try to bridge that gap we understand those high standards and we are moving towards them but we understand that people need so many things before they can start doing that
0: yeah And it's nice to have the high standards, too, because you want to have a vision of what's actually possible. Uh, You know, that's inspiring. Um, But there are different teachings for different levels of of development, and and those are relevant, too. All right. I think we've covered that point. Now, this is an interesting little section of of points here. Non-sectarian spirituality. And the first point in that is, do all paths really lead to the same goal? And I've had this discussion a lot with some friends, Dana Sawyer among them, who's been on Batgap a couple of times, you know, if you had, if you got Jesus and Buddha and Krishna and Ramana and all these greats into a room together to have tea and have a chat, would they actually realize that they were
1: all experiencing the same thing? What do you say to that? I think that... um at least for me, but perhaps for many of us, we have always had this idea that all of these teachings are different paths to the same end. But after two decades of spiritual search, I'm questioning myself, like, is it really so? Is it, is it really that the difference is only the, because the explanation that they give is that different teachers have different temperaments, or they are speaking to people of different temperaments, or they come from different cultural backgrounds. And that is what colors the different explanations that they give about the path, the goal, the practice. But if I, if looking deep into these things, it doesn't seem to me that it, it is the case. Just giving one small example, Ramana and Shankara said that to keep a body, however subtle is to throw a veil of ignorance on reality. All right. so for, for their point of view, a fully realized master has really dissolved it to the self and does not exist as an individual in any level, anywhere in the cosmos, right, just disappear. You
0: mean once he's, once he's dead, or even while he's alive?
1: No, but once he's dead, because once that would dead. be the final, okay. yeah. yeah, he dropped his final body, and he dropped, that drops all the bodies, and he doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So praying to Ramana wouldn't make sense, because there is no Ramana there, so some, some force of the universe may respond, but not Ramana. So that is, that seems to be what Ramana and Shankara and other, Advaitins are saying. But you go to another lineage, let's say the lineage of Babaji and Lahiri Mahashaya and Yukteshwar. And you see that they, they speak of the master leaving the body and continuing to do work in subtle levels of reality to help people around there. And then a master that is already completely realized taking another body to come and do more work in yeah. this world, etc, like an avatar or whatever. So, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So, so i'm trying to understand this and see how all of this fits in the picture so one option is these are two different things right? one of them is right the other one is wrong or another option is no they're actually they are different goals maybe maybe the end of the spiritual journey for for advaita vedanta is that complete effacement into the self maybe for many other uh, paths they don't want that, or they don't want that so soon. They want to stick around and maybe the story of the Bodhisattva in Buddhism. They could become a Buddha and just um, dissolve in Nirvana, but they choose to stick around and continue to play in existence. I've probably
0: spoken to maybe a dozen people who've actually had experiences with Ramana in some cases before they ever even heard of him. And you know, then later on, they saw a picture of him on a book or something. They said, "Oh, that was the guy that I saw." You know, that came to me. Um, so it might have been that Ramana was, got a surprise after he died and <laughs> realized that he was gonna, still going to serve some kind of a role in creation. I don't know. Um, but I think one thing on this point is that, sure, different paths might have different goals, but ultimately, I think we would agree that. There is some ultimate reality to the universe. You can't have as many ultimate realities as there are paths, because then they wouldn't be ultimate, they would just be relative realities. And so, theoretically, the highest spiritual teachings, whatever they might be, would all lead to that ultimate reality. And if they didn't, then they weren't the highest, they would lead to some relative degree of attainment. And Although the different cultures in which those traditions arose might use different language to try to describe that ultimate reality, it would still be the same thing. Different beings might have different roles to play. Maybe some of them do dissolve like a drop into the ocean and no longer exist in any way, shape or form. Maybe some retain some kind of form through which they can function. So that might just be an individual dharma thing, you know, what what your role is to play. But still, we come back to the point that ultimately, there should be some ultimate reality and that, that that's what enlightenment is ultimately
1: about, is the,
0: the realization of that.
1: Yeah, so reality needs to be one, Um but maybe there are different, maybe there's a choice as you're going about in the spiritual path, like, do I want to just disappear into the eternal, or do I want to play in manifestation? Yeah. Because... The, the, the eternal, the one without a second, is both Brahman and Maya. So do I want to go to, do I want to, there's no way to, like, do I want to be the just the Brahman or do I want to continue being the Brahman but also in Maya? Maybe that's a choice that they have. Yeah. Also, with regard to God, there's that choice. Uh, do
0: I want to be totally merged or do I want to maintain some separation for the sake
1: of devotion? Mm-hmm. That, that question but, is a traditional one. Yeah. Because if I think that all of the spiritual path is for the ultimate goal of disappearing, and that's, that doesn't motivate me so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some people may say like, yeah, that's because you are attached to an ego. You want to continue existing as an individual. But then I say like, is the universe in a hurry for us to awaken? If we look at the Vedas before, there was only Brahman. And then from time to time, Brahman manifests as the universe. And then it goes back to a time when there's only Brahman. So when it is manifesting in the universe, is it in a hurry that, okay now there is illusion. Let's make sure that all these individual beings, let's make sure that the show finishes as quickly as possible. Is, Is that the purpose? That doesn't make sense for me.
0: Yeah. It seems that the universe has a great deal of patience and it's on a pretty big time scale. I mean, 13.7 billion years in in this particular cycle of it. And it's said that there are numerous cycles and perhaps infinite universes. So it's a big picture. And uh, in my experience and understanding, the ride is enjoyable. I don't really sweat it in terms of you know, whether I'll cease to exist or whether I'll come back or whether there'll be some role to play on some level or other. It's like, leave it in God's hands and just in, and do the best one can to to be an instrument of that
1: divine intelligence. Mm. In this sense, I like the concept of Lila. Yeah. And I think that the, the tantric tradition maybe got this a little bit more, uh, in a way that is more appealing for most most of us. More than Advaita and Buddhism and all. He, yeah, because that is a bit more nihilistic. Um, but for in the tantric tradition, the universe is the lila of the supreme. And if the supreme just wanted to be the supreme, it wouldn't have manifested at all. It doesn't manifest so that the manifestation finishes as quickly as possible. It It's part of its nature to be just the supreme and to as if manifest as a universe. And that's its lila. And if we see it as lila, then there's a lightness about it and there's, for me, it's much more motivating and it feels much different the way I approach the spiritual path. I think that's a great point.
0: That point inspires me and um, it comes up fairly often in conversations here. Also, the notion of God, if we look at the universe, any little bit of it, and consider what a marvel it is, you know, how many atoms are in this glass and what's happening in each of those atoms and subatomic particles and the whole thing. If the whole thing were just random and accidental, which some materialists try to say it is, uh, the second law of thermodynamics would have ground it to dust a long time ago. In fact, it never would have arisen. There's, There's this notion of biocentrism and there are about 200 different variables, any one of which if it had been slightly off, like the strength of gravity or various other things, we wouldn't have had a universe or we wouldn't have had any life in the universe. And yet we do have a universe and life. And all these variables were perfectly tuned to enable that to happen. So that doesn't seem like randomness or accident. It seems like a profoundly de- um, designed designed intelligence that, that has orchestrated this thing and set it up as in a way that we can barely comprehend.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Great. So a bit about meditation. Your book is called Practical Meditation, and you, you pretty much summarize all the different kinds of meditation that one might practice. Uh, and it's nicely illustrated, all kinds of cool stuff in here. So, do you see uh, all the various meditations uh, as being equal, or do you kind of see that different strokes for different folks and that people are naturally going to gravitate to one? form of meditation or another according to their inclinations
1: their, their nature mm-hmm. yes and yes basically i think that there are different ways of looking at all of these meditation techniques and each of them there are a lot of common benefits regardless of the technique you choose but each of them has a different kind of taste and experience and different benefits also to it so it depends on your personality. If the, the meditation you would choose depends on your personality. Um, it, it can depend even on things like, are you a more of an auditory person, more of a visual person or more of a kind of a body person? Because if you're more of a body person, you may really enjoy breath awareness meditation and that may come so natural for you. If you're more of an auditory person, you may like mantra, which is a sound, or you may like Nada Yoga. If you're more of a visual person, you may like gazing. Tratta. So there are many elements to choosing a meditation technique that is going to be the one that kind of flows better for you. And it also depends on what you need to develop the most at this time in your journey. So if what you need to develop the most is letting go of certain negative emotions, overcoming anger, being more empathetic and loving, opening your heart, then maybe the loving-kindness meditation from the Buddhist tradition is the best one for you right now if your mind is really, really messy and dissipated, I would say Tratak is really really powerful for kind of uniting the stream of the mind. The gazing. Yeah. So it depends on many things. And I would say that one meditation practice is not better than the others, just like one path is not better than the other. And unfortunately, I see a lot of this sectarian thinking out there, uh, I see it in Zen, I see it in Vipassana, I see it in Advaita, I see it in TM. Like, this is the, the best, and the other ones, they, they're just longer or they reinforce the ego or whatever. And I think that that is a very narrow minded way of seeing, and I think that misses the picture. Is for different people, you would need different practices. And so, the best practice is the one that works for you at this moment in your journey, and five years from now, it may be different.
0: Yeah, you know, I think there's a human tendency to sort of want to feel that what I am doing is the best because if it's not the best, why am I doing it? You know, I Mm -hmm. should be doing something else if something else is better.
1: So it must be the best because I'm doing it. Yeah, and you see, even, even the masters reinforce that. You yeah, know? they do. Like, Ramana says that self-inquiry and self-surrender are the superior techniques. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yukteswar says that the Kriya Yoga is the best right, way and, to evolve.
0: And Mar and, and Yogananda said that Kriya Yoga was like an airplane that could get you somewhere quickly. And then Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came along and said, well, yeah, fine, but TM is the
1: jet plane. It goes faster than the airplane. <laughs> yeah, so it's... a. Uh, for me, it's like why even the masters kind of indulge in this type of thinking, and I I feel like as you as you mentioned, there is some usefulness to that. You know, even there's some usefulness to dogma. If I am with the master, and I am with the path, and he says like this is the best path, the only way forward, the most effective technique, like okay, I'm not going to think about anything else. I'm going to focus on this 100%, and I'm going to have better results. But if all techniques are equally good and beautiful and useful, which is kind of like what I'm pointing to, it may be that the person is like doesn't know where to begin. So what I say is like, you have a period of experimentation that you are exploring, you're kind of going wide. And then you have a time that you're going deep and ideally you would choose one path, one way, one practice and stick to that. But you do that after you have experimented, after you have broadened your view. Of course,
0: the dark side of this is, you know, when you get people who say, well, anybody who doesn't believe what I believe is an infidel and should actually be killed, you know, Mm. or converted, or those are the two choices, you know, otherwise, Mm. and the whole world is going to eventually either be killed or converted, you know, to so it'll all be one thing. Those are the kind of extreme value of this line of thinking. Okay. It's kind of useful to go through these notes because we're bringing out some things that I don't always talk about. Um, You mentioned the word charging, presuming money. uh, Yeah. And some people say that nobody should charge for spiritual teaching and others say, well, yeah, but you got to make a living. Teachers have to eat and pay the rent. And so what is
1: your attitude toward that? Mm. So in the beginning, I was very against charging anything for a spiritual teaching or, or even meditation. And little by little I changed my mind about that and that's why I started the blog. And I think there are some important points here to to clarify. First is, we can, we can teach and practice meditation outside of a spiritual search, right? And there are many people who do that. And every time more in the West, especially for mindfulness and Vipassana, people are seeking meditation and they don't want all that spiritual, they don't want the spiritual path. They don't want the spiritual concepts. They just want to practice that will help them deal with anxiety. Like many people that come to me, that's what they need. And then, yeah, if I give them the practice and their anxiety will improve, they will manage it better or may even disappear, then they may be open to say like, okay, so what else is there? If this made such a difference in my life like what else is there? Is it that those ancient yogis invented one thing that is a gem and everything else is rubbish? Or probably not. Probably there's some other gems in what they said as well. Um, So if if you think about what happened to yoga in the past, it was the same thing like you, people would frown upon you teaching yoga, like I'm talking about the asanas um, and being paid for it. But now it's just commonplace. Like, you know, like, okay, if I just, If I want the yogas, I want the asanas, I'm going to pay for a studio, a teacher, someone that lives by doing that. And that's okay. If I go to a yogi in a cave, I I probably don't need to pay anything. But there are people who are paying for his life, there are people who are donating things for him. And the same will happen in meditation. We are still in that phase where people who are very traditional in meditation, like myself in a way, feel a bit off by charging for meditation. But if you're teaching med- the first thing is if you're teaching meditation in a secular context, like as a tool of growth, of healing, of self-exploration, then you're not charging for spiritual teachings, right? that, That's one thing. The other important thing is, let's say that this argument that you shouldn't charge for meditation, spirituality wins. Let's say that everyone is convinced by that. You know, there are some people who are not going to be convinced by that, and it's people who are companies companies that are looking at these things simply as a profit, they will continue to promote and create apps and books and retreats and whatever, right? So if you convince everyone who is a a true spiritual seeker that wants to dedicate his life to share these teachings and these practices, if you convince them to not do that because they shouldn't charge, they're going to have to have a job. And their ability to dedicate themselves to this is going to be severely diminished. right? And that is not in service of people because the spiritual aspect of meditation will become smaller and smaller because people who are who have a spiritual background will not want to charge for meditation. But people who don't have a spiritual background will look at meditation as a business. And what happens is that their version of the meditation, that's going to be the, the one that gets spread. And I don't think that's good for anyone.
0: I mean back in the olden days the monk would go around with his begging bowl get enough food to eat and uh there would be some support from the community for the the ashram or the you know where where the monks lived and they would teach so there was a sort of socialism kind of support for them these days in the west teachers can't really do that and they have rent to pay and you know maybe health insurance yeah. and food all that stuff so It's kind of silly in a way to just say, well, spirituality is about consciousness and consciousness is a far cry from money, so there shouldn't be any money involved. But like everything else, it can be taken to extremes and abused and, you know, become a a mercenary kind of endeavor. So, again, students should probably use their discernment and discrimination and decide whether they feel comfortable with the way the whole money issue is being handled by a teacher that they want to get involved with.
1: Yeah, and... I would say that the more that sincere teachers and, and seekers who have something to share, the more they are able to make a comfortable living, dedicated themselves, dedicating themselves fully to the teaching, the more the Dharma in all its versions will flourish, right? And this is something that I learned only recently, but uh, even in the Vedas, even in the, in the ancient traditions, there is this idea that you cannot, you should not get knowledge for free. If there's a master, there's a teacher, someone giving you knowledge, giving you a technique, If they even have the idea that if you get it for free, it's not going to work. All right, so there's the dakshina. Dakshina, exactly. So dakshina, you can see it as a kind of an energetic exchange. Um, from a psychological level, it makes sense. Like, we don't value things that we don't pay for on many uh, aspects. Um, but the dakshina, so if you want to receive something that is so valuable from the guru, from the teacher, you need to give something back. And that something back could be money to help him pay his bills. It could be knowledge. It could be service in the form of seva. But you need to give something back. And nowadays, in our type of society, that's usually money, right? Which helps the teacher to continue to live and and teach full time.
0: Yeah, it's a medium of exchange. You can't very well give him a cow.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to be so useful.
0: (laughs) Uh, Okay, final topic, and then we'll wrap it up. A friend of yours named Daniel from Newport, Vermont said, hey, Giovanni, it's your friend Daniel. Do you feel that occult practices and learning cities can help one transmit teachings of awakening, being able to really see someone to know what teaching or transmission of energy to give? And I know that you yourself kind of started out with occult practices many years ago. And in your notes here, you say the spiritual taboo on psychic powers and their role in liberating science. So what do you have to say about all that?
1: Well, it's a big topic and it's controversial. But um, let me start by saying this. If you look at the Yoga Sutras, one sixth of all the verses in Yoga Sutras are about Siddhis. Okay? And at that time, it was very difficult to write. They didn't have paper, right? So much so that Patanjali only wrote 204 verses. And he dedicated a big part of that to Siddhis, how to develop them, etc. So, Siddhis have been a part of spiritual awakening and, and uh, spiritual paths in many traditions. Right? Some people hate them and think that they're just distractions. Some people love them and seek them for what they are. And some people see, like, no, they, they can be useful or they can be hindrances. You now, in, in the Yoga Sutras, verse 37 or 38, it says that these siddhis, they are obstacles to the mind in samadhi, but they are faculties to the exteriorized mind. So when you are in Samadhi, when you are in that deep state of um, union, right? And these cities appear, like you, you have a vision of your past life or you, you start levitating or whatever, whatever it is, if that appears in that state, it's a distraction. But for the exteriorized mind, the yogi does not live in Samadhi all the time. He lives in the world. So when he comes out of Samadhi, those cities, they are faculties. Right? They are things that he can use. Just read the um, autobiography of a yogi. Sure. from Yogananda, stuff, yeah. or uh, living with the Himalayan masters from Swami Rama, and you see that uh, very advanced yogis and masters, they had CDs and they did use them on certain occasions. Always, always for good things, not for entertainment, not for showing off, but for good things. So yes, I think as a, as a teacher, if the teacher has the CD that he can look at the student and can understand everything that is going on in their life, and can see the student deeply, without the student needing to explain much. That can be very helpful. I have a friend that he's a ex monk from the from a Tibetan tradition, and he says that in Tibetan Buddhism, it's considered that the perfect master would have all of these skills, so that he can truly serve at a deeper level.
0: It's so congruent with Christianity. I mean, Jesus had a, a bunch of different cities, according to the, yeah,
1: yeah. So that is, that is one thing. Um, Cities is something that can come on the path as you're practicing. They are something that can be purposefully sought after for a certain period of time. And if you do that, the skills that you develop in, in trying to practice to develop a city, they will be helpful for other things in your path as well, but they should never be misused. And that's the big challenge. Once the person gets those cities, it's very easy to fall into the ego, to want to show off or to want to use that to fulfill other types of desires that should not be used for.
0: Yeah, you can go over to the dark side, you know, like Darth Vader and use them to strangle people or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That's just what he did. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Have you ever experienced a city or developed one?
1: I I haven't developed a city, but I have experienced some times in my life.
0: Temporarily. yes. It's good we brought it up. Like you say, we could t- talk about it for a long time, and we don't have the time to do that. But it is there in pretty much every spiritual tradition, and it certainly was a big part of the Yoga Sutras, and the Buddha was reputed to have all kinds of different cities. And so it's a little bit simplistic, I think, to just brush it off as, yeah. as a distraction or an obstacle. Uh, it seems to have had its role seems to have its role in higher forms of spirituality so it's perhaps something to take seriously and to understand
1: yeah if you think of a person coming to a, a yogi or or a guru and saying like i'm interested in practicing meditation only to have better memory it's going to be useful in my life the yogi is prob- it's going to teach you meditation he said, say look you're going to have better memory you're going to have many other things right but another person comes to the yoga and say, I want to learn meditation so I can remember my past lives. Then suddenly it's like, shame on you. How, how dare <laughs> you? Like, this is an obstacle, etc. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not so different. It's a skill of the mind and it, it's not the end goal, but if that's what motivating is motivating a person to learn meditation and to be on the path, I would say, do it, right? Just, just go for it. And, but at the same time, understand that this is only a small chapter of a larger story and a higher goal. Yeah, which
0: brings us back to a point we've made a number of times during this interview, which is that there's a value to knowledge. If you just really ponder this stuff and really think about it and dwell on it, which is one of the pillars of of spiritual practice in many traditions, you know, knowledge and dwelling, keeping your attention on this this kind of thing everything kind of tends to fall into its proper context and you don't overemphasize something to the exclusion of others. And so that's part of the reason I I do these interviews. It's just sort of, it helps me to keep myself focused on on knowledge, but it also, I think, helps the people who listen to them and broadens their perspective,
1: hopefully. Yeah, and uh, before we finalize, I just want to touch that on the topic of um, cities' role in liberating science. Our Western civilization and culture is is heavily based on influence in science and our science is very materialistic. If our science became more spiritualized, if it started studying the spiritual topics more, if it started opening up to that whole level of reality, then there would be so many positive benefits, so many areas like medicine, uh, philosophy. It would be a huge benefit for society if science started to say, like, "Look, there's actually more to our life than this body, and our actions uh, matter, and there's karma." Imagine, imagine if that can be proved one day, and there's a past life, and uh, we're actually more connected than we think. Some people can even read read minds of each other. That will change the worldview little by little of millions of people. Yeah. That's another of my beneficial. favorite
0: topics, uh, I, and I gave a talk at the Science Non-Norality Conference in nineteen in, in 2015 about that, and we, you and I could go on another two hours about it, but we're not going to be able to right now, but that's, it's yeah. a very important point. We live in a scientific age. Spirituality can really get science on the right track, and science can really help spirituality by giving it a more empirical, practical, systematic, verifiable
1: orientation. Mm-hmm. And, and once some advanced yogis that have these cities mastered, they decide to come up and to demonstrate this in scientific means. And then there's no explanation within science for what they're doing, that will force science to review some of its paradigms.
0: Yep, paradigms will have to shift. Okay, well, obviously I enjoy talking to you, but we're going to have to conclude. So you teach, you have some kind of whole online meditation program, don't you, that um, People can go through in a step by step way and, and try various kinds of meditation and then hopefully find one that they want to stick with?
1: Sure, sure. So, for those that want to learn more, they can check Live In There, which is my website. And uh, I'll the program will we'll,
0: link to it from your page on that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the program is called Limitless Life. And it's, it's really for everyone that wants to start or deepen a meditation practice, but specifically focus on people struggling with um, anxiety.
0: Good. Okay, so um, we're going to conclude now. An interview can't be as, ever be as comprehensive as I would like it to be because I would like to just sort of talk to you for eight hours and really get into everything, but this is a, a, a kind of a sampling, it's a taste. And those who found Giovanni's points uh, worthy of deeper exp- exploration, I'll link to his website from his page on batgap.com. You can go there, there's some very interesting articles on his site to read, and you can sign up for his email newsletter, right, and be notified of webinars and and so on. Buy his book if you want to, I'll have a link to that. Thanks Giovanni, and thanks to those who have been listening or watching. Next week I'll be speaking with Danny Antman, and we're going to be talking about Kabbalah, and I don't think I've ever done an interview on that, so it's about time that I got around to doing one. So, I'll see you then. Thanks.